good morning to my welcome. It's such a blessing to be able to share God's word with you uh, this evening. I'm very excited to speak on a topic that is very new and dear to my heart. Um, as the youth of the world, so my brothers and We're currently in the fourth week of our training series for the fall season titled Church Matters. And what we're doing in this series is that each weekend we are taking the guys into different roles that the church plays. And we're looking at different examples in the Bible that model how we are to be the church and build the kingdom in the world that we find ourselves in. Today we're going to look at one of the main purposes of the church is going to accomplish, and the main call gives all people to choose to follow him, and that is to be a model for the next generation of believers. We're going to learn about how our words and actions are meant to pass on the faith to the young believers and to the young And today we're going to do this by looking at two examples of scripture, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament, to really speak to how we are to shape the next generation. In both stories, we're going to see a culture that has gone above and beyond to impact and influence the lives of young people. And then you're going to see characters who take a stand against that influence and exemplify a counter-cultural way of living. You're going to see people who place an unworldly emphasis and commitment to their faith that disrupts the attempts of these cultures for them to compromise their following of God. What I hope you'll discover this morning is how much God cares about us investing the same type of care and sacrifice into the youth and our culture, and how we ought to be passionate with the same commitment as a model of how to live out faith according to biblical principles. The first story comes from one of the most unique books in the entire Old Testament, the book of Daniel. Now, this book is one of the most complex, detailed, and expensive books in all scripture. It's commonly referred to as the Old Testament Book of Revelation for its second chance that focuses on prophecy and mentoring. The book is broken into two parts, with the first six chapters mostly covering the life and ministry of the prophet Daniel, while the second half focuses on the vision Daniel has that predicts generations leading to the first and second coming of this champion, this promised Messiah, who Daniel refers to as the Son of Man. Now, reading the book can cause the reader to really be confused and, and make you stop and wonder if it's a story that is just too convoluted to understand its relevancy. Really, the key to breaking down the book of Daniel is to recognize that even though it is a book that records both past and future events, the story of Daniel is not a book about what did happen or what will happen. Instead, it is a book about what happens over and over again. It is a book that teaches that the trials of this world are cyclical. And the reason the book teaches about what always happens is because the book suggests that there is a war going on in the spiritual realm, and that we, the church, are meant to be a guide in the physical realm to help navigate God's people through the war in the spiritual realm by pointing them to the way, the truth, the life, the Savior who wins the war, the Son of Man, and Jesus. And what the book of Daniel suggests is that the enemy in the spiritual realm absolutely goes on the offensive to try and influence, manipulate, and dictate the lives of teenagers and children. The enemy does this deliberately, and he does it aggressively. So the book of Daniel takes place in the backdrop of Israel's darkest point in its history, the Babylonian exile. In a few moments, we're going to take up the story from our Old Testament scripture reading this morning in Daniel chapter 3. 
And although we are in the book of Daniel, today our focus will not be on Daniel the character, but rather his three best friends. Because our text centers around three young men who lived their entire lives in captivity. And what you need to know about these three young men is that from the time they were teenagers, they have been under attack because of their faith. The enemies and spirits opposed to God have been coming after them aggressively, trying to get them to abandon their loyalty to God. It all started when they were taken from the only home they knew in Jerusalem and exiled to a distant land and forced to live out their lives quarantined in Babylon. In Babylon, they were forced against their will to serve in the palace of King Nebuchadnezzar, and over the years, they would be indoctrinated with the language and literature of the Babylonians. Every little thing they did traditionally in accordance to God's word was attempted to be changed by Nebuchadnezzar. The diets that they followed religiously as a way to honor God uh, were attempted to be changed, with Nebuchadnezzar imploring to the officials to try and get his prisoners to go against God's command. Even their names are changed. If the ultimate characters come from influential Jewish families, and therefore they were all given names that honored the God of Israel, his name being Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. However, you may be more familiar with the Babylonian names, Shadrach, Mishael, and Abednego, which were given to them by King Nebuchadnezzar. These were names that honored the multiple gods of the Babylonians. Everything these young men have endured over their lives comes to a head in chapter 3 because as they live in captivity, where they've been able to resist Nebuchadnezzar's many attempts to get them to leave their faith, they are finally given one very clear and explicit option. Go against the first and most important commandment of your God and bow down and worship this golden statue of mine, or die. Convert to my ways, or burn to death in a furnace. In the Old Testament passage this morning in Daniel 3, beginning in verse 4, the herald proclaimed in a loud voice, attention everyone, every race, color, and creed. When you hear the band strike up, all the trumpets, trombones, cedars, baritones, drums, and cymbals, all the enemies and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Anyone who does not mean worship shall be thrown immediately into a roaring furnace. We should really pause here and mention just how blatantly offensive uh, this morning's scripture is. You see, Babylon wasn't just any other kingdom. It was not just like any empire that rivaled the Jews in Jerusalem. The book of Revelation refers to Babylon as the mother of prostitutes and the abomination of the earth. This moment, this event in Daniel 3, is a recording of something taking place in the physical realm that is inspired by the war going on in the spiritual realm. Time and time again, the Bible takes the stance that behind kingdoms, Leading rulers, leading movements, and messengers of spirits that are guiding them. And whether it be in the book of Daniel, the book of Ezekiel, the book of Job, the book of Second Kings, or even the book of Revelation, whenever God speaks judgment against a foreign nation or leader, in all of these instances, he also clearly addresses the spirits that are influencing these leaders. The Nebuchadnezzar, who is influenced by Satan, such as a giant statue of made of gold. 90 feet tall and 90 feet wide. He says, bow down and worship it, or die burning in a furnace. And naturally, the theological implication uh, can be kind of obvious. Worship this idol, worship this creation. The obvious connection between the nature of the story is the aspect of so what is our idol that need to be removed from our lives? 
but it goes even deeper than this because that golden statue didn't just have physical representations to it, but also stood for something immaterial but just as valuable. See, the golden statue is commonly believed to have been the statue of Nebuchadnezzar himself. And Nebuchadnezzar was the conquering hero who was establishing Babylon as the most powerful military force the world had ever seen. To be living in his kingdom meant you were living in the greatest kingdom in the world. It meant prosperity, it meant security, it meant a reliable economy. The movie for Golden Statue represented future, it represented a prosperous life because refusing to buy down to it meant immediate death. But there is our three characters, three young men who valued something more than they valued their own lives. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whose names were given to them to honor the false demonically inspired God of Babylon, instead would become synonymous throughout history, and the stand they were going to take as one of the most God-glorifying moments in the entire Old Testament. They refused to compromise their faith, they refused to go against the commands of God and bow down to anything or anyone other than Him. And in verse 17, as they stared death in the face, he said to King Nebuchadnezzar, We are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God who needs to be able to save us. He will rescue us from the power of your majesty, but even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you that we will never serve your God or worship the great statue that you have set up. Making his faith versus life, following culture or following God, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three young, passionate believers, serve God. And what follows next in the story is something I'm sure most have heard of before. You see when Jews were thrown into the fire, and, and, and if the story ended there, there would still be a story of a beautiful example of faith and a courageous example of how we were to pass on the truth to the next generation through action. However, the story doesn't end there. And there's a specific reason why the story doesn't end there. Because the truth is going to be foreshadowed. The three men were thrown in the furnace after a moment, Nebuchadnezzar jumps back in fear because they were not letting out five or ten in torment. Unbelievably, they weren't even being burned. Picking up in verse 25, Nebuchadnezzar says, Look, I see four men, unbound, walking around in the fire and hard, and forced in such a battle. When Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace, he started shouting at these children of Benedict, servants of the most high God, and here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire in the hot and the officials, officers, governors, advisors, crowding around them, saw that the fire had not touched them. And the hair on their heads was seen, the clothing was not spoiled, and they didn't even smell smoke. You see, one way that the church is meant to pass on the next generation is by unapologetically standing for the truth. And what the truth tells us is that death is no longer to be feared, because death is defeated. Death is not final. Because Jesus took our place, because he died and rose from the grave, the grave is no longer something to be afraid of. Because Jesus goes into the fire, he experiences the pain, the suffering, the torment, so that we don't have to. How are we to save the next generation of the church? Help them know the real Jesus. The real Jesus. He said that in a second example from Scripture this morning, this really speaks to how the church escapes the next generation. It comes to us from Mark chapter 10, where we see an interaction between Jesus, his disciples, 
and children. And what stands out in this passage are the actions of the disciples. You see, Jesus is someone who, in his entire ministry, everywhere he would go, was criticized for the type of people that he associated with. He was sneered at and harassed by religious leaders for spending too much time with the wrong group of people. The disciples by this time probably were used to Jesus embracing people that the culture rejected or that society said were not to be associated with. So the disciples would not have made it a normal practice to stop people who were trying to come and meet Jesus. However, that isn't the case in our gospel text this morning. In this instance, the disciples' first inclination is to interrupt a specific group of people who are trying to meet Jesus. In Mark 10, beginning verse 13, one day some parents brought their children to Jesus and to touch and bless them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering them. When Jesus saw what was happening, he became angry with his disciples and he said to them, Let the children come to me, do not stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. The group of people that the disciples were rebuking were children who were being brought to see Jesus. And through the lens of our culture, the reason to see Jesus might be the case is because naturally the disciples and their parents might have found children to be somewhat annoying. However, it goes much deeper than that. In that day, specifically under the Roman Empire, children were not highly thought after. Many children were neglected and many more were actually abandoned. Children who were born with any sort of disability or health complication would be left outside with the child. Families who got pregnant and couldn't afford to take care of the baby tended to practice infanticide. When these children were left outside, what would happen is other people would come along and grab the baby and make them afraid of some other horrifying thing that these children were supposed to grow up into. Ultimately, a father owned a child like a piece of property. Children were not seen as people with value, with rights, and there was no protection for them. A father could do with the child whatever he wanted, and there was no legal recourse. It was a society that led to a very high income death rate, and the major reason, along with others, why the average lifespan is so low. Half of the, half of the children born in that culture died by the age of five. In that region, in that time, the quality of your life depended completely on the character of your father. You were lucky to be born to a father who valued your life, who had a chance to live in a normal home. If you had a father that hated you for whatever reason, you might be left in the of an infant. If you had a dad that got sick of you at any time, you could literally sell you off his property to someone else. Being a child in that society was potentially horrific. There was a culture that said children had no work, that there was property that were only as valuable as the amount of value that a father was willing to place on them. And the disciples who grew up in this culture looked at these children and placed the same labels and barriers on these children who had come to Jesus as they probably placed on themselves in their labels. A big part of the reason why the church became so popular and exploded in the first century following Jesus' ascension because many people who became followers of Christ were these people who were abandoned. They were poor, they were slaves, they were outcasts, and they discovered that in the church of Jesus Christ, they were given a lot more dignity 
in the world and society. For them to hear this message that there was a father who loved them, who cared for them, who wanted to take care of them, who only wanted to do good things for them, this, this idea would have been so foreign to everything they understood the role of the father to be. Could it really be that there is a God who wants to have a relationship with me, that he calls me his child, that he doesn't want to leave me to die, but instead goes and dies in a place for me? Jesus said the example that the church is meant to take, that the church isn't only welcoming to children, but that the kingdom of heaven belongs to one who longs to honor, to run to the arms of their Savior. The church is to pass on the knowledge that there is a Lord that really loves them, that really sent his son, who really lived a perfect life, and really died the death we deserve, and who really did raise from the grave so that we might have a relationship with him. I'm sure most here are familiar with one of the most important commandments that Jesus has to quote coming from Deuteronomy in chapter 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. But what most people don't have so memorized is what the text says immediately following that commandment. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 7, you shall teach these commandments diligently to your children. So talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you ride. So if we look at this text, we examine the culture we find ourselves in, we look at how we are doing the church to that culture, we have to ask ourselves, how is that going? How are we doing in that area? Are we shaping the next generation according to how the Bible tells us we should? Teenagers in 2020 have been dealt a difficult time. And I know we all feel like we're having a long run this year. We've all fallen on tough times and have had a rough go, a rough go, but that's very true. But what I'm referring to is outside of the pandemic. The challenges that students are facing have been things they have had to learn to live with for their entire lives, even before COVID, and there will be challenges that are there for them when the pandemic is over. Students are put under an immense amount of pressure, the likes of which have never been seen. A recent study done by two research found that the average teenager experiences anxiety at a level today that would have had them placed into a psychiatric hospital in the community. With depression being the number one most common mental illness that a student experiences. And the results on how it's affecting teenagers in this country are disastrous. Suicide is the third leading cause of death for young people aged 15 to 24 in the United States. And the leading hypothesis as to why this epidemic of student mental health is where it's at is largely due to the amount of pressure that is placed on students. Everything they are now part of is no longer seen as something to do or an extracurricular activity. It's impressed on them that it is a way to majorly impact their future. It's something that can help them get into a better college so that they can have the best careers so that they can secure their future. The idol that started at least back in the were told to worship that represented prosperity and security was physical. All the idols that students face in front of our students and our students today are no longer physical, which means that it's so much harder to see that they are there. Students are already under enough pressure as it is because it's no longer just going to school to get their grades to get into the best college. 
The said students are now encouraged, if not enforced, to take the hardest honors classes. It requires even more homework that they have to do on a monthly basis. The national average for the amount of homework students have every night is about three and a half hours. And in today's world, pretty much every student is involved in some sort of sport or extracurricular activity. And most students will even express that they don't join sport or play the band or join cheering because they love it. Instead, they will verbalize that the number one reason they got involved in that activity is because it impacts the future. Students will spend hours after school at some sort of practice before they even have the chance to come home and begin that amount of homework that is being given to them every night. Whether it's at school, whether it's at practice, or whether it's at home, seemingly the pressure never ends up. So why is this important? How does the church shape the next generation and the culture that it's seen in? We're no longer living in a time where the primary voices and influences are Christian. This is the world that students are finding themselves in, and these voices are not going away and are not backing down. We're in a culture that is going increasingly opposed to biblical Christianity, and the cost of following Jesus in that culture is getting more expensive. And when the teenagers are longing to find out why they should have a faith and how that faith fits into what the world tells them they should do or should be trying to do, for most of them in time when they're striving to discover themselves and confused about the type of person it is they want to be when they grow up. And we had a point in history with so much pressure keeping our students to prepare them for the future. And I can tell you from speaking to them over many hours and through many conversations that the one thing that is dominating their fears. The one thing they are more terrified of than anything else is the future. Yet, this is the one thing most of them are constantly being pushed into focusing on. And if the formative voices in students' life are always setting an example, whether it's their words or actions, that the commitment to faith is a second or third most important thing for learning this behind academic or extracurricular achievement, then why would a student ever say they need to follow God? How could they ever really truly know God's will for their life, and how could they ever have a saving relationship with Christ when the only time they are told to devote any focus to their spiritual health is when they have nothing better to do? Now, I'm in no way supporting against student involvement in extracurricular activities. In my years in high school, I feel like two experiences that really changed me and ultimately shaped me into being a person I am today. The first experience was the years I spent playing football in the high school football team. Uh, football taught me discipline. It taught me about being part of a team. Uh, it taught me about sacrificing to accomplish the goals and for more than just myself. It also taught me how to refrain from reacting on my emotions and to keep my composure. There are unbelievably positive benefits from partaking in opportunities such as these students. The second experience is Jesus. Experiencing the real, living, breathing, alive Son of God for the first time in my life. One of those two experiences has ended, and the other has not. And the transformation and salvation that comes from really knowing Jesus does not have to be missed out because students are so focused on the future. Both in the Babylonian culture in the Book of Daniel and the Roman culture in the time of Jesus, the church displayed a counter-cultural example of what being a follower of Christ means. Examples in, which young, examples in which young people would stand for the truth, willing to sacrifice everything in the pursuit of glorifying Christ. 
The church matters because it shapes the next generation. In a biblical way, the church is called to shape the next generation and with an undying commitment to the truth. Placing the importance of the truth above every avenue in life and every promise that the world can offer. So I believe we as the church are called to be a counter to the culture that is truth that going up in. Students definitely need to know the truth because they can't afford to have the true good news of the gospel lost on them. They need to know the radical truth for everything they do at learning about themselves in a culture that is totally performance based and constantly putting more and more pressure on them. The students need to know the value God places on them and that it is not based on their grade point average. It's not based on which school they go to. It's not based on how many goals they score this season or, or how well they perform on the court or the field or in the center. God approved of them long before they took their first breath because he sent his son to a cross and with his last breath declared to the church. We need to be told by everyone in the church, most importantly the parents, that Jesus fulfills their future and nothing in this world provides the eternal glory, fulfillment, or security that knowing Jesus can provide. We need to know that Jesus does not turn them away and that the kingdom of heaven belongs to them like a throne. We need to know the Heavenly Father who will not add to the heavy burdens they bear, but instead says, Come to me, you who are tired, and carry heavy burdens, for I can rest. We need a church who is committed to helping them get to an eternal home where there is no mental stress, where nothing can wear them down, where they can live in a never-ending freedom. We need a future that doesn't create stress or anxiety to provide peace and a presence of the God who created them for the very purpose of experiencing this never-ending reality. We need to be shown the truth by passionate believers who are willing to stand for the truth, that they are infinitely valued, infinitely approved of, and infinitely loved. We need Jesus. Amen. Would you please rise and join me in the prayer of Christ?